Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study This brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 19, 1 Kings chapter 11. Well, we'll continue in 1 Kings chapter 11 by rereading the entire chapter in sections. Now, last time... We just got started into this chapter that could reasonably be titled The Reasons for the Division of the Kingdom of Israel. Because we're given four basic premises by the author of this Bible book for how it could be that the united and sovereign nation of Israel, an admired and wealthy and powerful country, would fall into ruin, into civil war, and split into two kingdoms just within a few months after Solomon's death. And the four reasons are Solomon's deliberate and outrageous behavior towards his people that mirrored that of a typical Middle Eastern monarch instead of a set-apart and anointed king whose God was Jehovah, whose guide was the Torah. Second, as a consequence of this bad behavior, the Lord raised up adversaries to weaken Solomon's kingdom and, and, and to prepare it to be torn apart. Third, this man Jeroboam had always sought power and glory. So the Lord used him as a tool to wreak havoc, to be the leader of the rebels who wanted to overthrow the Davidic dynasty. And fourth, Shlomo's idolatry that had its root in his vast harem of foreign wives and concubines. This was a severe offense towards the Lord. It couldn't go unpunished or God would not be a just God. I'll probably enjoy today's lesson a little more than you will. <laughs> because due to its subject content I get to preach at you a little bit <laughs> and towards the end we're going to take a little detour that I think you'll find informative and helpful so I'd like to start by reminding us all that while our personal salvation is a matter between each individual and the Lord Whatever divine justice we experience communally as a member of a nation of people is based on the actions and the character of our leadership. This is a biblical principle that stands as firmly today as it always has even though for some reason our Christian and Jewish leaders rarely openly discuss it. Thus, one could reasonably say that while the fate of our eternal spiritual essence is determined on a one-by-one -one basis before Jehovah, the fate of our earthly, physical essence, our, our flesh and blood bodies, our day-to-day -day lives, is largely determined by the standards and behavior of our national leadership. Oh 
common people of ancient Israel, all ancient kingdoms for that matter, had little if any choice in the selection of their national leadership. But they still suffered, or they benefited, depending on that leader standing before God. However, in modern democratic countries of today, we have only ourselves to blame as citizens for when we select a poor leader or we refuse to take action to remove a leader who has proved him or herself to be unworthy of their position. It's always been a challenge for followers of Christ to determine how involved we ought to become in what we have come to call politics. For some Christians, becoming informed, helping to choose or influence our various levels of governments is seen as something to avoid altogether because they don't see it as having anything to do with their faith walk. For others, they see their involvement in politics as a calling, even a full-time preoccupation. Wherever you fall along this spectrum of political involvement, I would like you to pay close attention to what happens to the kingdom of Israel as Solomon becomes the poorest of leaders. He places economics and wealth above all else. He practices and demands tolerance for all religions and all gods. And he sees the people of his nation as but pawns to be used to achieve his personal ideology and ambitions. Okay, let's reread a few verses of 1 Kings. Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 11. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 382. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. King Shlomo loved many foreign women besides the daughter of Pharaoh. There were women from the Moabi, the Ammoni, the Edomi, the Sidoni, and the Hitti, nations about which Adonai had said to the people of Israel, You are not to go among them, or they among you, because they will turn your hearts away towards their gods. But Solomon was deeply attached to them by his love. He had 700 wives all princesses, 300 concubines. His wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon became old, his wives turned his heart away towards other gods so that he was not wholehearted with Adonai his god as David his father had been. For Shlomo followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonites, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Thus Solomon did what was evil in Adonai's view. He did not fully follow Adonai as David his father had done. Shlomo built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab on the hill in front of Jerusalem. another for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. This is what he did for all of his foreign wives, who then offered and sacrificed to their gods. So Adonai grew angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from Adonai, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had given him orders concerning this matter that he should not follow other gods. 
but he didn't obey Adonai's orders. So Adonai said to Shlomo, since this is what has been in your mind, and you haven't kept my covenant and my regulations which I ordered you to obey, I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. However, for David your father's sake, I won't do it while you're alive. But I will tear it away from your son. Even then I won't tear away all the kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Now since in our last lesson we discussed much of what is written here, I'd like to focus on verse 4. Take a look at verse 4. There it says that the difference between Shlomo and his father David is that David had remained wholehearted towards Jehovah. In Hebrew the words are Shlomo lo malechar Yehoveh. And it most literally translates to Solomon did not go fully after Jehovah. What this is referring to is loyalty. Solomon quit being loyal only to the God of Israel. Now we spent months in Samuel and in Kings discussing the terrible things that David did from murder to adultery usually to satisfy his sexual lusts or exercise his political paranoias. But what he did not do was worship other gods. He hung steadfastly to Jehovah. Even in the midst of committing heinous sins, he did not succumb to worshiping any other than the God of Israel. Solomon, on the other hand, does not appear to have engaged in adultery, at least as defined culturally in those days, as taking another man's wife, or in any kind of overt murder. Yet, in his old age, he openly worshipped other gods, even if it was mainly to please his many foreign wives. David's punishment for his many sins against other men was to be barred by the Lord from building the temple. Solomon's punishment for his sin against God, idolatry, was that God would yank Israel from his grasp. In reality, from Solomon's son's grasp. Thus, perhaps this is a good clue to help us understand what our Savior meant about speaking against or blaspheming the Holy Spirit. When he said in Matthew 12, verses 31-32, Because of this, I tell you that people will be forgiven any sin and blasphemy, but blaspheming the Ruach HaKodesh, this will not be forgiven. One can say something against the Son of Man and be forgiven, but whoever keeps on speaking against the Ruach HaKodesh will never be forgiven, neither in the Olam Hazah nor in the Olam Haba. The King James Version puts, puts it this way, and I think it captures the sense of the words a little bit better. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, 
But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto man. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever so, uh, whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Okay. But what these passages are actually getting at is that the commission of sins, crimes, human against humans, or blaspheming, lying, slandering, human against humans, which is also, by the way, against the law of Moses, this can all be forgiven them. However, blaspheming, speaking against the Holy Spirit, cannot. And notice that in the Matthew passages, that Yeshua uses one of his favorite expressions when referring to himself, the Son of Man. When he says the Son of Man, he's emphasizing his humanness. See, although he is a God-man, by using the phrase Son of Man, he is identifying himself with us the human race, and all of our fleshly weaknesses and frailties. Thus, what Yeshua meant when He was saying that it could be forgiven to speak against Him was meant in the context of one man speaking against another man as opposed to the context of a man speaking against God and thus committing spiritual blasphemy. Now, while I'm not confident enough to say that I fully understand all the elements of this concept of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, nor where that line is that once crossed amounts in God's eyes to blaspheming Him, the gist of this concept is perhaps best seen in God's attitude towards David who regularly blasphemed and committed crimes against humans. But he stayed loyal to Jehovah. He did not blaspheme God. This is versus Solomon, who generally did not blaspheme humans or commit crimes against humans, but he did blaspheme God by committing idolatry. You see the difference? As in the Ten Commandments, whereby some commandments deal with human-to-human behavior, others deal with human-to-God behavior, so we see the same in Yeshua's words in the New Testament book of Matthew and here in 1 Kings 11, that there are crimes that are directly men against men, and thus these crimes are only seen as indirectly against God. But there are also crimes that really don't have a human victim. But instead, they are directly against God. And idolatry is the chief among these types of crimes. And therefore, idolatry is by definition blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's common among the rabbis to say the following, as do the editors of the Art Scroll series on the prophets in their commentary on 1 Kings. And I quote you. 
This chapter criticizes him, Solomon, sharply, saying that toward the end of his life, his many wives caused him to go astray even so far as to follow idols. That very verse implies clearly that Solomon was not an idolater because it goes on to state that his failing was that his heart was not as wholesome with Hashem as that of his father David, not that he actually worshipped idols. Now, as much as I admire the learned Hebrew sages, they are often, like some Christian teachers and pastors, caught up in mindlessly defending a dubious doctrine by declaring something that simply isn't backed up by the Scriptures. Look at verse 5 in your Bibles. Look at verse 5. No matter which version of Scriptures you want to examine, and I looked at a lot of them, it clearly and unequivocally states that Solomon followed after, which means worshipped, Ashtoreth and Molech. The Hebrew is equally clear. In fact, in verses 9 and 10, the passage explains that the main source of God's anger with Solomon was that even though God had visited Solomon twice, and on one occasion told him explicitly, don't follow other gods, Solomon disobeyed and did follow other gods. But the rabbis deny this. And they say he only did it in his heart, in his mind, and not physically. Now most Christians would say that there's but a hair's breadth of difference between thinking it and doing it. And I certainly agree with that. And thus we have another valuable insight into Judaism that can be hard for especially Gentile Christians to digest. It is that Orthodox Judaism is built as a system of physical rituals and behaviors. Therefore, what one thinks in their minds, what one believes and has faith in, is secondary to what one physically does. So if Solomon did not actually, physically, openly get on his knees before an idol and say certain prayers to it out loud and offer it sacrifices, then he wasn't really an idolater from their perspective. Now, of course, in our case, <laughs> the Scriptures clearly state that not only did he physically worship these false gods, he was the one that even ordered altars built to them. Solomon was an idolater of grand magnitude. And as I just mentioned, let's not quickly bypass that in verse 9 we're reminded that God indeed appeared to Solomon twice. God never appeared to David. God appearing to, Sol uh, appearing to Solomon in a dream, in a vision, this was a rare and amazing honor. And for Solomon to still go and worship other gods after Jehovah, personally speaking to Solomon, personally telling him not to worship other gods, well, it's hard to find words of sufficient condemnation. Well, back in verse 5, and then in the next couple of verses, we're given details of which false gods Solomon worshipped and where he had their altars built. 
The name that stands out and is mentioned first is the one that will be at the center of almost every false god system ever to emerge in history. Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth is the moon goddess and she's the goddess of fertility. Her name translated into the languages of other cultures is Ishtar in Assyrian, Aphrodite in the Greek world, Ostra in Anglo-Saxon. In English her name is Easter from which we get the name of the holy day that we celebrate the Messiah's resurrection. That she is the fertility goddess is why the main symbols for Easter all over the world are rabbits and eggs. So while we have every right to condemn Solomon for sinking into syncretism, for adding pagan symbols and worship practices to the religion of the God of the Hebrews, it's undeniable that long ago Christianity succumbed to its own form of syncretism by adopting the practices of ritual worship to the goddess Ashtoreth, Easter, an observation of perhaps our holiest day of the year. When the verses speak of the place of these altars as the hill on the south, it's referring to the Mount of Olives. So the same Mount of Olives that millions of Christian and Jewish pilgrims visit every year was littered with altars to false gods during Solomon's era. So in verse 11, Yehovah tells Solomon that since not only was the thought to follow other gods existent in his mind, that is, he desired to follow these gods, but he also didn't keep the Torah meaning that he physically did the wrong things he was thinking to do. And as a consequence, the kingdom of Israel would be taken away from him. And it would be given to another. Specifically, it would be given to one of Solomon's servants. I doubt Solomon comprehended what God meant by servant, or in Hebrew, eved. This is referring to someone that Solomon lorded over, an underling. But these represented everyone from the lowest woodchopper all the way to a member of his royal court. So who might this person be? Well now here comes another God principle that we need to be mindful of. God doesn't go back on his word even when it seems that he ought to. God promised David that at least one of his ancestors would be alive and qualified to be on the throne of Israel forever. So how can Jehovah take the throne of Israel from Solomon and give it to a servant of Solomon's who by definition would not be a family member and yet keep his promise to David? Because doing such a thing sounds like it would be the end of David's dynasty. The answer comes in the next two verses. For the sake of the promise that God had made to David, Solomon would not physically lose the throne of Israel. Rather, it would pass on to his son after his death, and then his son would lose the throne. But even then, what the son would lose would be his rule over the, the largest portion of the kingdom. 
all this area up here. Okay, but a small piece, Judah, would remain for him to rule over. When God orders something to happen on earth, from a spiritual perspective, it's already occurred. When God told Solomon that he'd lose the throne in the form of being of it being taken from his son in heaven, it had already occurred. Nothing good could happen upon the throne of Israel from this moment forward because its occupant was no longer in God's favor. The Lord says that He's going to give to Solomon's son but one tribe to be king over. All else is going to be taken away from him. That single tribe will hold the territory of Judah because Jerusalem is to remain with David's descendants. This is the place where God has chosen to put His name so it will not change. Ever. And what an effect upon the entire globe that ancient promise has even to our day as the world's powers try every imaginable way to force Israel to give up hope for ever having a temple for Jehovah rebuilt in Jerusalem. What they don't know is that from a heavenly perspective, it's already been built. Because God ordained it 3,000 years ago and it will happen. Let's move on to some more verses of chapter 11. I'm going to read 14 through 25. 14 through 25. Then Adonai raised up an adversary against Shlomo, Hadad the Edomite of the royal line of Edom. Now back when David had been in Edom and Joab the commander of the army had gone up to bury the dead having killed every male in Edom for Joab and all Israel had stayed there six months until he had eliminated every male in Edom, Hadad had fled. He and a number of Edomite servants of his father, fathers with him and had gone into Egypt. And at the time, Hadad had been but a small boy. And on their way, they passed through Midian and arrived in Paran, took with them men from Paran, went on into Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He gave Hadad a house. He saw to it that he had food and gave him land. Hadad had become a great favorite of Pharaoh, so that he gave him his own wife's sister in marriage. That is, the sister of uh, Tachpanesis, the, the queen. The sister of Tachpanesis bore him Gugnat, his son, and Tachpanesis brought him up in Pharaoh's own house so that uh, Gugnat was in Pharaoh's house along with Pharaoh's sons. When Hadad in Egypt heard that David slept with his ancestors and Yoab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me leave so that I can return to my own country. And Pharaoh asked him, But what have you lacked with me that makes you want just now to go go to your own country? Nothing in particular, he replied, but let me leave anyway. God raised up another adversary against Shlomo. Rezon, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord Hadadezer, king of uh, Zovah, when David killed the men from Zovah. And Rezon rallied men to himself and became the leader of a band of marauders. And they went to Damasek, Damascus. 
settled there while he became king of Damascus. He remained an adversary as long as Shlomo ruled, causing difficulties in addition to those of Hadad, and he detested Israel, and he ruled Aram. Well, since this entire chapter is dedicated to explaining that what happened that caused Israel to be effectively dissolved and split into two kingdoms was God's anger at Solomon. Verse 14 tells us that one of the steps God took to bring it about was to weaken the civil fabric of Israel and the hold of King Solomon upon his kingdom by raising up some enemies to trouble Israel. And the result would be that the aging Shlomo would lose some valuable pieces of territory. The common folk of the land would become discouraged and disheartened, no longer sure of his leadership. And Israel's enemies would become confident and emboldened, and thus the table would now be set for civil war. Well, Solomon's first antagonist was Hadad, a fugitive from the land of Edom. It seems that many years earlier, King David, along with, some, along with his military commander, Yoav, found themselves battling Edom. The result was a resounding victory for David that devastated the male population of Edom, but also had the effect of instilling a furious hatred towards Israel that wouldn't be quenched until revenge was taken. Now, the exploit is something that we actually talked about back in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And it seems that when Hadad was but a young child, his father fled Joab's onslaught, his son Hadad in tow. And although the intention was to seek asylum in Egypt, they first spent considerable time in Midian and in the area of the Paran wilderness, years apparently. This gave them time to build up a force of fighters before they ventured down to Egypt. When they finally arrived in Egypt, the pharaoh was kindly disposed to them, giving them a place to live, everything they needed to be comfortable. Hadad was now a young man because he had he was in he was Edomite royalty that others who hated Israel and King David rallied around and after a few more years um, Hadad had gained such favor with the Pharaoh that Pharaoh wanted to create a formal alliance and actually gave Hadad one of his family to marry. Now naturally Hadad had children with the Pharaoh's daughter, with the Pharaoh's uh, sister-in-law and the firstborn was given the name Gunvat. The child was raised along with members of Pharaoh's royal court and Pharaoh's palace. Now it's rare for Holy Scripture to spend so much time describing someone's personal circumstances. But here, it's done to show how deep and embedded Hadad's hatred and determination to shed his family's and his Edomite countrymen's shame of being defeated and decimated by David was for him. So when word arrives that Hadad's nemesis, King David, has died, he goes to Pharaoh, he seeks his permission to leave Egypt and return to Edom. Now the protocol of a guest seeking permission to leave is merely a common courtesy 
among Easterners. It's just customary. The king of Egypt would not have refused him. It only means... It's only a means of the guest showing proper respect for the grace of hospitality that his host has shown to him. And in, in, in this typical Middle Eastern kabuki dance that always accompanies these sorts of formalities, the Pharaoh wants to know if perhaps he hadn't done enough for Hadad. And Hadad responds, that's not the case at all. It's just time for him to go without explanation as to why. Now it's interesting that we don't hear of Hadad explaining the reason for his arrival in Egypt nor his departure several years later. But the reason for keeping quiet, especially about his departure, is obvious. David is dead, Solomon is king, and and, uh, uh, one of Pharaoh's daughters is now King Solomon's wife. Pharaoh had a very good relationship with Israel. He was even closely allied with Israel by means of his daughter's marriage to Israel's king. And so Hadad had to keep hidden that his intent was to go back to Edom, organize, and then take revenge on Solomon and on Israel for what David and Joab had done to his people so many years earlier. Here's where we're going to take that detour I told you about. I want to take some time to explain that the source of Hadad's extreme hatred for Israel was shame. The attack upon Edom by David as a representative of Israel had taken away Hadad's family and his nation's honor. Now this is a very difficult concept for Westerners to wrap our minds around. But it is an important one for us to grasp. It's obvious that our highest government officials who shape and direct our Middle Eastern policy have little understanding of this foundational principle of the very societies they're trying to deal with. And it's not only important for us to explore because it helps us to better understand what we read in the Bible and exposes the common motive in the Bible for its characters to become shamed and then seek to restore their honor through revenge, but also because this same code of shame and honor is at the heart of the unrest in the Middle East today. So let's detour for a few minutes to see if I can, in fairly brief fashion, shed a little bit of light on this subject of shame and honor. But to get there, I need to set the stage. Each of the world's societies can generally be described as being built upon one of three sets of rudimentary philosophies of civil society. One, guilt and innocence. Two, power and fear. Three, shame and honor. I don't want you to think that these philosophies are pure in the way they exist and play out and that certainly elements of each type exist in almost every society. But in general, we can say that 
every identifiable society in the world conforms to primarily one of these three basic philosophical platforms. Guilt and innocence, power and fear, or shame and honor. And what we can also generally say is that whichever of these three platforms a society has adopted, it's not really consciously aware of it. They can't conceive of another society operating on a different platform. This probably has more to do with the misunderstandings among the many societies and nations of our planet than any other cause. Briefly, the platform of guilt and innocence is the one that we're most familiar with. It's the underlying societal platform of what is typically called the Western world. North America and Europe are the prime examples. But so is the Soviet Union, modern-day Australia, to a lesser extent some of the countries of South America. What makes us a guilt and innocence society is that we operate on a system of laws that sets down right and wrong. And then in some form or another, there is a justice system that determines if wrong has been done. And it applies the consequences. Now usually, especially if we look past the corruption, the laws are absolute and the punishments are consistent. Some societies, such as the USA, are the most rigid about the absolute nature of our laws. Other societies, such as some in Eastern Europe and parts of South America, are a little more flexible. No matter. The idea is that if one violates the law, that person is guilty. And if one is law-abiding, then they're innocent. And it is this sense of guilt or innocence that defines the character and the status and the value of a person as a member of that society. Therefore, we find our, our politics, for instance, seem to always wind up revolving around the discussion of right versus wrong. Decisions are made on a basis of right versus wrong. And this is because to be right under the law makes one innocent. To be wrong under the law makes one guilty. As revered a person as that business tycoon Bernard Madoff once was, he's now a pariah after wrongly bilking thousands of people out of billions of dollars. And this status as a pariah is because, whereas one time he operated with a societal status of innocent, he is now guilty. And it is his status as a guilty person where, who has committed wrong that makes him a societal outcast. Now to most ears, you're probably saying, so what's new? Of course that's how things happen. Everybody thinks that way. 
all societies have their unique sense of right and wrong, guilt and innocence, even if it can be quite different. No, they do not. And that's where our misunderstandings of society and the Bible begin. The second of the three philosophical platforms of society is fear and power. See, this is the one that seems the most primitive when we understand what it is. It's a societal platform that believes in the existence of many spirits, many gods, and it operates based on an immutable belief that these gods and spirits all have some power or another over you. And because a spirit or a god who has power over you can harm you, you have fear. These societies have shamans and witch doctors as guides and protectors and, and, and doctors who treat spiritual infestations. Okay. This is a society that operates day to day on trying to counteract or avoid this, this fearful power of a spirit or a god. They believe that they must find a way to live in peace with these unseen powers, either by avoiding them stealthily or appeasing them, or maybe by finding some means to appropriate some kind of opposing power for themselves that causes sufficient fear in these spirits and gods to leave them alone. Thus, in this kind of a society, their chief goal and the underlying rules of their society has no systematic or universal code of right and wrong. The terms right and wrong, guilty and innocent, has no meaning whatsoever because that's not how life operates. Whatever means it takes to gain power and thus alleviate your fear or to gain power as a means to project fear into someone else, or to ward off some god or spirit, it's fair game. There's no right, there's no wrong. These people see themselves as living in a sphere where the natural and the supernatural live together and they're not separated. Men making laws and rules, this is incomprehensible to them. Therefore, there is no such concept as guilt. doesn't exist. As the Bible tells us, where there is no law, there is no trespass. And if there has never been such a thing as a law, then there has never been such a thing as guilt. The third societal platform is called shame and honor. And while there is a concept of right and wrong, it's not absolute. It's not even the driving force in that society. Let me be clear on one thing, however. For Westerners, shame more means feelings of guilt or a loss of self-esteem. That's what shame means to us. Shame tends to come upon us when people we trust violate that trust. As with child abuse or, or molestation. Shame is also what we feel at times when we feel guilty. 
We tell our, our children or our friends or even our congregations to act rightly. And if they do not, they will properly feel guilt. But in a shame and honor based society, all members are taught to act honorably, not rightly. And if they do not act honorably, then the result is shame. Just as in a guilt, innocence, and innocence based society where our status, our position is based on our doing right or wrong, in a shame and honor based society, one's societal status and position is based on being in a condition of shame or in a condition of honor. So, as much as a person works to be honorable, if they are shamed, then they will do whatever it takes to get their honor back. Thus, right and wrong are not based on any absolute, but rather within the context of achieving, maintaining, or reacquiring honor. This is why a Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern father whose daughter has violated some cultural norm and thus has brought shame upon her and her family feels no sense of wrong by murdering her, even though he may also feel grief-stricken for her, over her loss. Rather, he has done what he must to rid his family of shame so that they can go forward in honor once again. If a person finds him or herself in a position that if they tell the truth, they will lose their honor, then they will lie and it's not wrong. Because in their society, maintaining honor is the whole basis of their culture. Thus, right and wrong are relative. Right and wrong are not predicated on laws but rather on cultural rules and customs about how to avoid shame and how to maintain honor. Sometimes must, one must actually do something to return their honor that the government has, deserve, has determined deserves a punishment. But even that isn't necessarily a matter of right or wrong. In fact, that punishment is oftentimes seen as merit for doing what one must to get back their honor. Often this punishment is seen as no more than a price to be paid, like a ransom, for what must be done to get rid of shame, and one is often very admired for it. Further, Time, generational turnover, plays no role in a, a shame and honor society. Thus a man who died in shame expects his son to avenge that shame for him. And if that son's unable to, his son is obligated, and so on and so on. Entire nations operate on a national level with that same understanding. Maintaining or recouping honor is far more important than life or death. 
Thus for someone to kill another for causing them shame brings no sense of guilt. Because it's right in that society to have honor at all cost. I'm going to end this for today with this thought. In the Muslim world, shame is routinely handled by killing the person who shamed you. And thus bringing you or your family back to a societal status of honor. But in other oriental societies who have shame and honor as at least a a major part of their societal platform, such as the Japanese, shame is often handled through suicide. But either way, to a fault, shame and honor-based societies put human life and death far below the matter of shame and honor. The only issue is who dies in order that the shame's relieved. The party who caused the shame or the party who was shamed. The one in one the answer is homicide, in the other the answer is suicide. Now we're gonna start next week by talking about how all this applies to the Bible. And then also we're going to apply what we just learned to 1 Kings 11 and to the person of Hadad.